0: Genesis is the book of beginnings. It tells us about God who created everything and called it good. It teaches us about humanity, how things went wrong in the world, and God's plan to make everything right again. We are Christ the King Church. For more information, visit ctksnc.com. Good morning, church. Thank you, David, for the word. Appreciate the encouragement. And um, I told you last week, whenever I get a picture from kids, I like to show it off here. <laughs> so this is from Esther. This is, uh, this is a depiction. You can't see it probably, but this is, this is what we're talking about today. <laughs> Got Jacob, Leah, and Rachel, and uh, the sons. We see Benjamin, Joseph, Judah, Naphtali, Dan, Levi, Simeon, Reuben, and there's lots of tears. So <laughs> this is this is fun. I always love getting these, especially it reminds me that the kids are paying attention. So that's, that's good accountability for me to make sure I try to make it clear for everybody. Well, it's good to see all of you. And we are going through a series in Genesis. And currently we're focusing on the life of Jacob, life and family of Jacob. And what we're going to do today is a character study. In fact, three character studies of three different people. You've already met them. It's Jacob, Leah, and Rachel. With all three of these characters, they're all looking for something. Meaning that uh, all three of them have a void or something in their life that that seems empty, that is going unfulfilled. And so they're all looking for something other than God to fill that need. For each of them, that drive, that emptiness, is going to drive uh, their action. It's going to cause them to do things that will end up ending to a lot of harm and making things worse. And yet also for each of them, God's love and care was already evident in their lives. But they needed to learn how to recognize it. So through these character studies, what I want us to do is is to learn to to recognize God's love and grace in our own lives so that we're attentive to what God is doing. All right, let's dig in. We're going to end up in Genesis 29, but I want to uh, take a couple minutes to get us there. Let's start with uh, Jacob. Jacob is the first character in our character study. A few weeks ago, um, we talked about how Jacob has a father wound, meaning that his his dad, Isaac, loved his big brother more. He favored Isaac. And so Genesis 25, verse 28 said, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So Isaac, his father, didn't love Jacob. Jacob had this father wound, and that father wound affected him deeply for the rest of his life. We'll see that Jacob was looking for approval. He wanted a blessing. He wanted some affirmation of who he is. And so in Genesis 28, God does do something. God appears to him. Genesis 28, Ben preached on this. This is the Lord appeared to him in a dream. So he had this powerful vision of God where God, he, he fell asleep and was in this dream and he saw the heavens open up and there was this ladder, it says, uh, stretching up to heaven. And he saw angels going and up and down on this ladder, meaning that God was present. God showed up and God said, Jacob, I'm with you. I see you. I'm blessing you. God reassured him of his promise. All of these things were happening with Jacob. And so in that, in that chapter, verse 16, Jacob responds saying, surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. God showed up. God gave Jacob affirmation and loved him. So it was an undeniable message that God was present and watching over him. But for Jacob, it wasn't enough. That emptiness in his heart was still eating away from him from the inside. So even after this mind-blowing encounter of God's This vision of God's love and majesty and power couldn't dislodge the pain that was left by being unloved. But then he meets Rachel. So when he meets her, she's beautiful. He's over the moon for her. I mean, she's a knockout, a perfect 10, everything he would want. And so he thinks that she would be maybe the one. Maybe she could cure this ache in his heart. So what he does is he offers this exorbitant bride price to have her. He tells her dad, Laban, that he'll work seven years to be able to to have her. Now, why would he do that? Well, Genesis 29, verse 20 gives us a clue. It says, Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. He was, he was infatuated. He believed that Rachel could fill this void, that she, I mean, she meant everything to him. And so he, was, he would do anything it takes to be able to have her, and Laban, her dad, knows that. Jacob tried to fill his emptiness with romance, but it's not going to work because God, can, God is the only one that can fill the void in our hearts, Right? God is the only one that can satisfy us in in the deepest ways. And so Jacob's trying to find a cure for his heartache by finding a soulmate. But he's setting himself up for disappointment. Now, as old as the Bible is, this is as current as you can imagine. I mean, this is right up to date, relevant to modern life. What a lot of men do is they think, if I could just have this girl... He gets infatuated. If I could have this girl, she could make me happy. And having her would prove to everybody else that I'm not such a loser. Some women, they think, if I could just have this man that I'm, that I'm interested in, if he would love me, then I would know that I'm valuable. And we would be so happy together. And, you know, if maybe you do get the relationship. Maybe for a while you get the relationship. It does make you feel better, but it's temporary. The thing is, no romantic relationship can bear the weight of those expectations. No other man or woman, no relationship romantically can, can fill you and satisfy you the way God can. It's not going to cure the ache of your soul. Only Christ is strong enough to carry that load. It is only the love of Christ that can fulfill us in the deepest parts. So if you get that relationship... Maybe it'll help, but sooner or later, it will let you down. They're human. They're fallen. There's going to be pain, disappointment, heartache. It's not going to meet all of those expectations. And that's what happened with Jacob. His infatuation with Rachel made him vulnerable. And, that, and, and Laban, he saw right through it. He exploited that because he knew Jacob would do anything to get her. So that's what he does. He agrees to work for seven years. And then after seven years, finally, the wedding day has arrived. Jacob gets married to his soulmate. He consummates the marriage. But then as we talked about last week, come to find out Laban had switched out the women. It was late. It was dark. They'd been drinking. She was wearing a veil. And then Jacob goes in and he consummates the marriage with her sister. He deceived him into marrying Leah instead. Now imagine what a gut punch that would be, to be deceived in that way. And so this blindness of Jacob's desire, this, this total, he was totally consumed by her, it changed the course of his life, and it changed the course of Leah's life too. I mean, she had an emptiness of her own. Well, let's talk about Leah. What is, what is her issue? Let's look at verse 30 of chapter 29. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. So think about Leah's predicament. Just as Jacob was the unloved son, Leah was the unloved wife. She's not as pretty as her sister. I mean, we can't really imagine this, but if we could just for a moment, try to put ourselves in Leah's situation. Imagine how she would have felt. I mean, her father's actions were so cruel to treat her in this way. I mean, it would have been devastating for her. I mean, Laban pretty much was saying, the only way I'm ever going to get a man to marry her is to trick him into doing it. And that's exactly what he did. But even still, for the moment, Leah did come out ahead. I mean, she ended up getting married. I mean, she would have wanted that, but she did know in her heart that she wasn't loved. I mean, her husband was still infatuated with her little sister. So for Leah, she was undesirable. She knows that she could never match her sister's beauty and that she would never receive her husband's love. So much like the emptiness in Jacob's heart, there was this emptiness in Leah's heart too. But God noticed her. Check out verse 31. Verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So the Lord saw her. He noticed her, right? The Lord saw that she was hated. He saw the predicament she was in, and God loved her. And God demonstrated his love for her with this blessing he gave her children. But that was not enough for her. Children were not enough, and we'll see that in a moment. What Leah did was she tried to leverage this blessing that God had given her to extract love from an unwilling husband. It's not going to work. Let's look at what happens. Verse 32. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. Do you see what she wants? She's blessed, but she's calling herself afflicted because she doesn't have the love of her husband. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now, this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. So, Leah, she gave Jacob exactly what he would have wanted. She gave him something that everybody wanted in the ancient world, and that was sons. Give him sons. So she would have been an excellent wife, providing her husband with sons. And the thing is, he didn't care. It didn't seem to move him at all. It didn't stir up any affection for her at all. So it became obvious to Leah that no matter how many sons she had, it was never going to be enough for Jacob to actually love her. So even though she already had God's love, I mean, God noticed her. We already saw this. God noticed her. He saw that she was hated, and so he blessed her and loved her. Even though she already had God's love, God noticed her and opened her womb. It was Jacob's love that she really cared about. And so this pain that she felt, this emptiness, it really comes through in the text Verse 32, she says, now my husband will love me. Verse 33, she says, I am hated. Verse 34, this time he will be attached to me. And all of this she calls an affliction. She's hurting. But by the time her fourth son was born, there was something that began to change. The, four, the birth of her fourth son indicates that her heart had started to change and turn toward the Lord. She named her fourth son Judah. Judah. That that word means praise. And this time she's not talking about Jacob. Her attention is on the Lord. She says, this time I will praise the Lord. And it seems that she was learning that God's love was enough for her. Like Leah, a lot of us find ourselves in what feels like empty or loveless marriages. Her marriage was empty and loveless. Marriage is not what she had hoped for. A lot of people feel that way. So you might have a wife. She's trying to get the husband's love. She's doing everything she can. She feels like she's doing everything right, but he doesn't seem to notice her. It's not enough. Or you might have a husband, and he's trying to get the wife's respect for him, and he can never measure up to her expectations. She's always demanding more, and it's never enough for her. And in situations like this, when you have a very difficult, painful marriage, the temptation is to give up hope. Maybe the romance is burned out and there's no spark left. And so the couple, you know, over time, you do go through trials together. Things get hard. Bad things happen. There's a reservoir of pain that you inflict upon one another. That happens. And so life takes a toll. And you might get to the point to where you just, you give up and you say, you know what? We're just not in love anymore. Sometimes people will even start plotting an exit strategy. They're thinking, How can I get out of this? I feel trapped. How can I get out of this situation? Or maybe they they just start looking for affirmation that they want in some other venue. They just just throw themselves into their job or career and let that get all the attention and they focus all their time there. Or maybe they find the affirmation they want in another, somebody of the opposite sex. Have an affair. Listen, that's not an answer. Don't do that. That there may be for a moment a a thrill. There may be a moment where it seems like you've brought the excitement back. But in the long run, there's going to be more pain and heartache that you've caused. You're not solving a problem. You're you're multiplying pain in the future. Now, I'm not doubting. Without a doubt, some marriages can be very hard. There can be a lot of pain and strife and difficulty in the relationship. Of course, that happens. But they can also get better. Things can get better. I've known many couples where they reach the end of their rope, and they think about throwing in the towel, and they're starting to use the D word. And they're thinking, this could be it. And yet, they give it one more chance, and they, they, they totally dedicate themselves to putting in the effort and God does something. God breaks through. They bring, God brings new healing, new life. He brings repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation. That can happen. So the grass isn't greener somewhere else. You can call it what it is. You can say, this is a trial. And the Lord is with us in it. The Lord is here. Leah, she was in terrible pain. I mean, we can't imagine what she was feeling, right? She had to share her husband with her younger, prettier sister, and he loved her. I mean, what, what could be worse? It's hard to imagine what could be worse than that. And so what she needed to do is recognize this situation was beyond her control. She's not going to be able to force Jacob to love her. She gave Jacob everything he would have wanted. She gave him four sons. That's hitting the jackpot. But it didn't do anything to change his affection for her. But what she could do, and the one thing she could do, was learn to relinquish control of her marriage. And slowly, over time, give it to God. Say, Lord, this is in your hands. And we see that she did that. Eventually, it did seem that she learned to set her hope in God to be satisfied in his love, and to be content with a bad situation. So by the time her fourth son was born, she said, Lord, this time I'm going to praise you. She's not talking about Jacob. She's, she's praising God and she's, she's saying, Lord, this is in your hands. She responds in worship. And, and we do see that the Lord is with her. The Lord's blessed her. The Lord's given her many sons. In fact, there, there are things that she is not able to see at this point in the story, but are some of the most massive consequential blessings that any woman could have. So get this, Leah was the mother to six sons in total and a daughter, six sons. And those six sons end up being the heads of six of the 12 tribes of Israel. So half of all the tribes of Israel trace their lineage back to Granny Leah. She's the mother to half of the nation. Two of those tribes are the most prominent. They're on the ascendancy and they're the most prominent of all the 12 tribes. Her son Levi became the priestly tribe and they were entrusted with the worship of God's people. And, you know, as long as the nation lasted, the tribe of Levi produced names like Moses and Aaron. And they established the priesthood, and, and got, this was like a mainstay, a, you know, a significant practice all through the history of the nation of Israel. Her other son, Judah, he became uh, the kingly tribe. And so the royalty, the monarchy, the, the scepter will not depart from the tribe of Judah, is the, is the prophecy in, in Genesis 49, I believe. That is, that is where the, the power of Israel resides, is in the tribe of Judah, and that produced men such as King David, King Solomon, and ultimately, King Jesus. So Leah ended up becoming the great, 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 however many greats there are, grandma to Jesus Christ. She may have felt an empty. She may have felt unattractive, unloved, unnoticed, unwanted, undesirable. She may have felt all of those things. But in God's providence, his blessing was on her in amazing ways. They were just ways that she wasn't able to recognize fully, but she started to. What about her sister, Rachel? Let's talk about Rachel. Moving into chapter 30, verse 1. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. So (laughs) I think she really wants a baby. (laughs) Get this. Rachel had Jacob's love, but she didn't have any children. Leah had Jacob's children, but she didn't have his love. And verse 1 here tells us that Rachel envied her sister for that reason. She envied her sister because she couldn't have children. Rachel's emptiness was infertility. And so she says here, give me children or I shall die. I mean, think of this, that she's expressing a sentiment that that her inability to have children, it feels like a death to her. God created her womb to bring life, to bear life, to, to have children. She knew that. She desired that. That's a good, God-honoring desire. And yet, becoming a mother was not, able to, was not going to be able to cure her emptiness, but she, that's what she was hoping for. She thought being a mother would cure that emptiness. Infertility can be a very emotionally painful reality. I've known so many couples that have gone through this, people in our church. This is, this is not an uncommon thing. And over the years as a pastor here, I've seen so many couples walk through this situation of the pain of infertility. So month after month, year after year, there's this pattern that, that repeats just over and over again. You've got this, this hope and then a build up and anticipation, which is followed by a letdown. And disappointment and grief, only to repeat that process again and again, month after month. Every time, you're like, is this the time? Is this the month? Will we get pregnant this time? And they don't. And so a lot of folks, they live with this perpetual state of grief, this agony, this heartache. And all of us know people who experience this, even though you may not know who they are. Because their suffering oftentimes is in Silence unless they say something, unless they invite you in and they tell you this is our struggle, you may not know. You may not know what's going on. You may not know this pain that they're experiencing because it's hidden away in a secret place where nobody has access to it until they let you in. It's very hard. And a lot of times people in this situation may react in the same way that Rachel did. What did Rachel do? Verse 1. She envied her sister. Rachel envied another woman's motherhood. Now, this, this dynamic can especially play itself out in a church like ours because there are constant reminders of the blessings that you want but don't have. So as a, as a church, I mean, we, we celebrate the goodness of Marriage and having children, those are blessings. Those are good things. We're not, we don't want to back down on that. We don't want to say, well, those aren't blessings. Those are blessings, and we celebrate those. And yet, for those that don't have them, those reminders are ever-present and painful. It's hard to be around people all the time when it's like, oh, somebody's pregnant. Great. Oh, there's a baby shower I'm invited to. Great. Great. Oh, we got to sign up for a meal train. They just had a baby. Great. Oh, look, it's Mother's Day. Oh, it's baby dedication. Fine. All the time, there, there are these reminders that other people are progressing through life stages and are experiencing blessings, and you feel like you're on the outside, looking in, missing out on the blessing that others are enjoying, and you don't have it. It does take a lot of faith and trust in the Lord to celebrate somebody else's blessing when it's the very blessing you've been praying for. So Rachel's infertility feels like a death. She says, give me children or I'm going to die. She would rather die than go through life without ever knowing a child of her own, without without ever having a child in her arms. Her womb was empty and she wants it filled with life. But she didn't respond with faith. She responded with envy, and that envy drove her to do some very desperate things. Let's look at at this. Verse 2, this is what she does. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, am I in the place of God, who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, here's my servant, Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. That's messed up. <laughs> That's messed up. Do you notice how interesting it is that her wrestling was not with God? She didn't say, I've wrestled with God and God's given me this thing. No, she said, I've wrestled with my sister. All of this time, her drive to have children was at least in part motivated by a competition with her sister. And so, well, finally I prevailed. I've got kids too, so take that, Leah. (laughs) Her envy started all this. Now, we've seen this story before, haven't we? If you know Rachel and, or excuse me, Abraham and Sarah, Sarah was barren. And she said, here, take Hagar, my wife, or take Hagar to be your wife and have children through her and that you get Ishmael (laughs) it didn't go well this is not going to go well we should recognize the pattern here and think this is not going to be a good thing now of course we talked about this last week God and his sovereign providence can take Rachel's envy the sin that it led to and the children produced as a result of that sin and do something glorious with it and we end up with 12 tribes God can do that But that doesn't justify Rachel's actions here. She's acting out of pain and out of envy. And she's doing something extreme. Now, I won't tell the rest of the... We won't read all the the text associated with this. But as the story goes on, Leah reacts to what Rachel did. And he's like, oh, if you can do that, well, here. I've got my own servant and I'll give her to Jacob. and, And sure enough, she has more kids through her servant. And then Leah has a couple more sons. So Leah and her servant have eight sons total. And then Rachel has two and Bilhah has two. So it's, I mean, it's a Leah or Rachel does some crazy things here. I mean, there's the whole thing about mandrakes, which is basically she's trying to use an aphrodisiac to get pregnant by seducing Jacob. But I'm not going to get all the details. It's a wild ride getting through this story. But all of this is driven by Rachel's envy. That's the thing I want us to see here. Envy is, is like a grief or an anger or frustration that is caused by somebody else's success. Somebody else is blessed or is prospering or has some good thing going in their life, and it makes us angry or frustrated or upset. Envy. That could be envy. Envy. Laura's first pregnancy ended in a miscarriage. This is before Reese was born. Her so first pregnancy was miscarriage, and I never knew how painful that could be until we went through it ourselves. And then it, then it became very vivid, just how much that can hurt. I remember this. It was it was right after right after this happened. She and I were at a conference, and the conference was with uh, other people that were in the same ministry we were a part of. And um, I remember sitting. There was this it's like a conference room that we were sitting in and we were, there was several other couples and families in there and we're at this conference table and this other woman was sitting at the head of the table and, you know, she kind of makes an announcement that they're pregnant with their first child. And the room is just like, oh, great. You know, they're clapping and and celebrating and everybody's happy. and, And I remember one person in particular said, look at her, she's glowing, just look at her smile. And of course she had this, she just lit up from ear to ear. She was so happy. And of course, I'm bitter about it. <laughs> I'm thinking, uh, good for you. You know, I, I didn't say this, of course. You put a good face on it. You smile and you celebrate. Wonderful, awesome. We're so happy for you. But inside, I'm like, man, I, I'm pretty hacked off about this because we lost the very blessing that she is now celebrating, and we're expected to just rejoice and be happy and be glad for her. It's like no, we're upset. We lost something, and and we had. But the Lord convicted me that. What was preventing me from celebrating was a heart of envy. That was, that, was, that was on me. She had a blessing we wanted, and it was an envy. It was an ugly sin. We couldn't love her because envy was standing in the way of, of our love for her. We felt bitter that God was blessing her. And that's the way envy works. I mean, envy, it comes from an entitled heart. Envy believes I deserve something, I should have something, and and God is holding out on me. God is depriving me of something I should have. And when somebody else has it, that's wrong, and it feels like an injustice. So just like Rachel, envy is a powerful force, and it can drive people to extremes. Rachel's solution was extreme this uh, give, give Jacob her servant and have more kids through surrogacy I mean it was, it was a, an extreme example, but let me show you this is one of my favorite verses on envy. this is Ecclesiastes 4:4 4. 4. it says, "Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. this also is vanity and a striving after wind if, you're, if you were some of you are here whenever we did a series on Ecclesiastes a few years ago. This striving after wind, chasing after wind, it's like trying to catch a handful of smoke. It's, it, you, you can't do it. And being driven by envy and trying to, trying to, to chase things through, through envy is like trying to catch smoke. It's chasing after wind. You'll never get it. It'll never satisfy. It'll never give you the thing that you want. It'll always leave you empty. And that's what Rachel was doing. Now, the opposite of envy is thankfulness. Instead of envying the things that we don't have, we can be grateful for the things that we do have. In fact, we can even be grateful for the things that we don't have if our heart is willing to trust God's providence, knowing that God has not given it to us, so therefore it's not what's best for us. And we can be thankful even in those things that we don't have. So, if you find yourself feeling frustrated or upset or angry when God gives somebody else the blessing that you want, here's what you can do: two things. The first thing you can do is confess it, name it, and by naming it, this is envy. You now you now know what to do with it. You repent of it as sin. You, you trust the Lord in his forgiveness. Lord, forgive the envy in my heart. Help me to be thankful. Help me to trust your providence in my life. The second thing you can do is to give thanks to God for what you do have. Lots of scriptures talk about giving thanks. It doesn't tell us to feel thanks. You may not feel it, but that doesn't mean you can't give it. You can give thanks for things that you don't feel thankful for and that can help your heart learn the way it's supposed to feel. Your feelings can catch up. So you can give thanks. God, you have not given this to me. God, thank you for your providence. Lord, I trust that you love me, that you're not holding out on me. You're not depriving me with cruelty or malice. Help me to be thankful and content. And guess what? God is so rich in mercy. He is compassionate. He hears our prayers. He hears our cries. God was doing a work in Rachel's heart. God did not forget her. I want you to see something. If you jump down to verse 22, after all this time, after all the things that she did, look what God did. Verse 22, then God remembered Rachel. He saw her. And God listened to her. He heard her prayers, right? And opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. What mercy of God. God didn't have to do that. But the Lord blessed her. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son, which he did. Her womb was empty, and she prayed and longed and cried out to God that he would fill it with children, and he did. He gave her two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. So we've talked about these three people, which... All three of them were acting out of their own pain. They all had this emptiness, this void, this thing they lacked. And they were looking to other things to satisfy them, trying to fill that emptiness in their hearts. God gave Jacob a powerful, personal reminder of his love, this experience of vision. But he wanted more. He thought he couldn't live without Rachel's love. God gave Leah a fruitful womb. He blessed her abundantly. She had four sons, but she wanted more. It wasn't enough. She couldn't live without Jacob's love. God gave Rachel the love of her husband. He adored her. But she wanted more. She couldn't live without children of her own. In every case, we saw God love them. God blessed them. God's favor was on them. Yet all of them were looking to something else to fill that void. Something other than God was what they were hoping in. Now, for each of them, the emptiness that they all face, it represents a trifecta of the most fundamental human desires. Love, marriage, children. And yet in a fallen world, none of these things are guaranteed, right? Many people live without any of them. And that is very painful. Listen, like, we get that. I get that. pastors get that. We understand that is painful when the thing that you most desire is a good thing, a thing that is honored and held up and revered in Scripture. It is a blessing. It is a wonderful gift. And yet many people do not have that gift. So we both value the gift and say this is a good thing. And yet we also acknowledge the pain of not having that gift. And we trust that God is working things out for his glory and and you're good and it sometimes mean that we don't have the things that we want that are good things to desire. So some of you may be in that situation. You want these things, love, marriage, children, and you, and you don't have them. And it feels like something's missing. It feels like God's holding out or he's depriving you. But the thing is, he isn't holding out on you. But, but, but there, you do need to believe. You do need to have faith that Jesus is enough because Jesus is enough. Is Jesus not enough? Yes, he's enough. Envy isn't the answer. Envy, it'll just turn your heart bitter. It'll drive you to extremes. It'll, it'll, it'll make you crazy. Envy is, it, it, it leads to such ugly things in our hearts. No, the answer is, is to believe that Jesus is enough to fill that emptiness to believe that only Christ can satisfy us, only Christ can fulfill us, only Christ can meet the deepest needs of our souls. And that's the hope of the gospel, that Jesus fills us. In fact, Christ became empty so that he could fill us. I want to show you two scriptures to demonstrate this. Two scriptures to talk about the fullness of Christ. The first one is that Christ emptied himself for us. This is Philippians 2, verse 5. Listen. Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He went lower and lower and lower, totally pouring himself out, emptying himself out for our sake. So think of this. Jesus was and is equal with the Father. He enjoyed perfect fellowship with the Father. Yet when he became human, he had emptied himself of many of the prerogatives and blessings of that relationship. He humbled himself by going to the cross, and he died in our place, bearing in his body the collective weight of our sin and the hell that we deserved. He was totally expended and emptied out. Jesus never had a girlfriend. Jesus never got married. Jesus never had physical children. And yet he was the most full man to have ever lived. Christ gave us his fullness. Let's look at Ephesians 4, verse 17. Now, I want to read this text, and we're joining Paul in the middle of a prayer here. But Paul says, "...so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints... What is the breadth and length and height and depth? And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's what you have received. You are full. You are filled with all the fullness of God. That's already happened, but we don't always recognize it. We don't always have the strength of faith to comprehend it. But it's there. We've already been given it. So when Jesus rose from the dead, he rose in fullness once again, filled himself with all the fullness of God, and that fullness of Christ is what fills the emptiness in our souls. We've already been given it; we've already received it through the Spirit. But sometimes, even though it's ours, we have a hard time believing it. It's there; you already possess it, but we we, we lack the strength to comprehend it sometimes. That's where faith comes in. Paul is praying for our faith that we may have the faith to know that Or that he prays that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. It happens, but we need to believe it. So we need strength to believe that if you have Christ, you already have everything you'll ever need. That we need strength to believe that Jesus is more beautiful and delightful and satisfying than anything else in the whole world. We need strength to believe that God's not holding out on us. He's not depriving us. He's not mistreating us. He loves us and he's working all things for our good and for his glory, even in the things that we don't have that we so desperately want. God is still using even those things to do something good and glorious in our lives. That's true. We need the strength to comprehend it, the strength to believe it and to accept it, to know that that's right. So if you feel overlooked in life or discarded by the world, if you think that you're unwanted or undesirable, don't put that on God. Because that's not how he sees you at all. God sees you clothed in all the fullness of his son, Jesus Christ. And what we've seen in this text is that God notices the weak, the unattractive, the unloved, the unwanted, the empty, the forgotten God notices them. God moves towards them. God blesses them. He's present with them. He loves them. And they don't know it sometimes. Sometimes it takes them a while for them to come around and to recognize it. But God's love is the present constant throughout their lives. And slowly over time, they start to see it. That's already true. You, hear this. If you're a Christian, you've already been filled with all the fullness of Christ. Even though sometimes we lack the strength to believe it. But Christ dwells in our hearts so we can pray that God will give us the strength to comprehend the length, breadth, width, and height the love of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we... We worship you, we come to you with gratitude for all the wonderful things that you've done, that Jesus, you you are all the fullness of God. And yet you emptied yourself out. You were expended and spent for our sake. You went to the cross and you died, having been poured out completely, so that you could be raised and all fullness of God and that you can fill us by the Spirit. Thank you for what you've done for us, Jesus. Thank you that we can know and we can see in the scriptures that we lack nothing, that Jesus is enough. Jesus is always enough. And Lord, what we lack is the faith to believe it. Sometimes it seems distant and inaccessible because of our circumstances. We see good things and blessings held up in Scripture and in our church that that we want. And so many of us don't have them. And it seems like you're holding out sometimes. Lord, help us to name that and recognize it for what it is so that we can trust the truth that you have not held out on us. Father, I pray for those that, are, that feel alone and they want the love of a relationship. Or those that are in a marriage that feels empty and loveless. Or those that long for children and, and yet they have empty wombs. Lord, all of these are good things. Love and marriage and children, these are blessings that are good things, Lord. We celebrate them. And yet that celebration can be a source of pain. So we acknowledge the pain of that, Lord. It's real. And we ask you, God, that for folks in those situations that you will give them the strength to comprehend the fullness that they've already received in Christ and that that faith will sustain them for as long as needed recognizing that we are not guaranteed any blessing apart from the ones that are promised us eternally. But in this life, there are so many blessings that we, we know that we're not guaranteed. They're, they're gifts. And you've given us so much. So fill our hearts with gratitude, thankfulness for what you've given us, Lord, and give us the faith to believe and your goodness and provision in the things that we desire, good things that we don't have yet. And Father, for those that do have those gifts, I pray that they will have tender hearts and mercy, compassion for those that don't. And it's help us to love each other well and to, to understand one another, that we all have different experiences, and help us to see each other's pain, but also trust you through the pain that it will not... Lead us to bitterness and envy. Lord, this was made possible. We acknowledge when you emptied yourself so that we can be made full. And we celebrate that as we come to the table. Your body was broken, your blood was spilled. And that's what we eat. We eat the broken body of Christ and we drink the spilled blood of Christ. That's our food and our portion that satisfies us, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for that hope and promise. Let me give you all these things, praying in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We are Christ the King Church. For more information, visit ctkcincy.com.